0: Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate.
1: welcome to Toronto under construction a podcast about everything Toronto real estate my name is Ben Myers I will be your host for today I'm a market research analyst a dad and a, and a bad driver as well apparently so long story we'll we'll save that one for later so before I introduce my guests I wanted to tell you a little about our sponsor. The Toronto Under Construction Podcast is sponsored by BCGI Barron Consulting Group, an executive search firm dedicated to the real estate industry. Since 1995, Robert Barron and BCGI have completed over 1,000 searches on behalf of developers, investors, occupiers, and lenders across North America. Their scope includes acquisitions, development, asset management, finance, corporate real estate, and board directors. BCGI has established partnerships with pension funds, REITs, fund managers, searching for talent. They are a trusted source for career advice and guidance for real estate professionals in North America. BCGI can be reached at www.bcgi.ca. Well, when these respective companies were looking for people, they found some good ones. So here are our guests for today. Harley Nekelski is the president of Baker Real Estate and Aaron Millar. Is it Miller or Millar? Malar is nice. Malar is nice. Okay. (laughs) The chief sales and marketing officer at Marlin spring developments. Welcome to the show. So before we jump in, can you guys maybe tell us a little bit about your companies a little more if people are not familiar and, and what you do at those companies, Harley, why don't you start us off?
2: I was going to say maybe Aaron should start. Uh, <laughs> yeah, should, should be ladies first, but sorry. I, that, that was where I was going to go. I was going to point <laughs> at her. Um, sure. So I'm the president of Baker Real Estate. We're the um, largest pre-construction sales company uh, in North America at this point. Um, we sell for a lot of the uh, developers in Toronto, including the amazing Marlin Spring and uh, <laughs> many other fantastic clients we have. And... Um, uh, essentially, we are the people on the ground. So when. Uh, Developers are looking to get ready to launch a condo project. They come to us. We help them everything from unit design. I don't mean we're architects. I just mean helping design a building where making the units very saleable all the way through the entire process of bringing them to market and uh, getting the sales. And then we leave it to the developers to figure out how to build these amazing buildings around (laughs) the city, Um, but really focus on all all aspects sales. Perfect. Um, And uh, and, yeah, and lucky uh, we're here with Aaron Miller or Millar and um <laughs> And we've done a lot of work together, actually.
0: Most people do pronounce it Miller, but Miller yeah. sounds very formal. It's no. lovely. Okay. Um, yeah, so as you said, I'm the CSMO at Marlin Spring Developments. Marlin Spring, actually, we just are celebrating our 10 years, um, and we just started to foray into high-rise development a couple years ago, actually, with the launch of our DOS project, that Baker was a big part of the success from that. Um, we have about 29 projects in our portfolio right now of various stages, obviously, of acquisition, um, planning, sales and construction so really moving the needle we moved from mid-rise i'd say about five years ago we were primarily in the mid-rise market we forayed into the high-rise development market as well as townhomes and then looking to launch some detached and semi-detached product in the near future so really completing our portfolio in a in a fulsome way in the future so yeah yeah, lots of very few
1: developers that are doing both high-rise and low-rise seems to be quite uh quite a different mindset and different development uh, uh, process, but uh, sales is sales, I guess, right? Yeah. 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 Balanced portfolio
0: (laughs) is good. I think COVID has shown us and historically, I think it's been an ebb and a flow in terms of the different product types over the course of the marketplaces and the years. So we like to diversify our portfolio as much as possible. And I think it's a, it's a smart move on our part.
1: Perfect. Yeah. Um, So let's jump in sales. That has been uh, uh, a topic of discussion lately. So, so during the first eight months of the year, There were 8,800 new condo sales in the GTA per per Altus Group figures, down 50% annually. And if this pace continues, we'll have the lowest annual total in 15 years. Do you think this is a temporary blip, or are we headed for a longer period of kind of below average sales? Obviously, considering the fact that we had been booming for a fairly long time. Harley, you want to take that one? I can take that one. Sounds up my alley. Um, So... The first thing I'm
2: going to point out that those numbers are a little bit skewed. And the reason I think they're skewed is um, there's been less launches. So the number one um, issue with the numbers is less units have hit the market. So if there's less units hitting the market, there's going to be less transactions. Um, I can tell you that, um, you know, at Baker, we sell 5,000 plus units a year. We did about 5 billion in sales last year. Um, This year, we're doing less. But I have to tell you, we're not off by more than about 20% max. Definitely not 50%. We do not represent the entire market, um, but we represent a good portion of the market. Sales are slower, but sales continue to happen. We're actually seeing more inventory sales on a day-to-day basis than we have in the past. But again, a little bit of a skewed number because we have more inventory units than we did at any time in the past. Um, I think that this is fairly temporary. I don't think it's over tomorrow. I think it's over in the next six months to a year. I think that um, we had a great rate hold looking at some of the economic data coming out. Um, I really don't think they're they're raising on October 25th. I would hate to be wrong, but I don't think <laughs> um, I don't think they are. I am not uh, an economist, and I can't guarantee that of any stretch, but I really don't think they are. And if we see another hold, and maybe even a hold in December, I think that it's going to really bring back um, a lot more developers to release product in the market. And therefore, we're going to see more sales in the marketplace.
1: Yeah. As well. I think it's also important to note that when the market is really strong, developers tend to, pull their launches forward so things that they might have said oh it's not going to be fully cooked for another six months they move the launches up which is another another important factor um and and the underlying economics despite this the 10 interest rate increases have been strong we got record population growth we have in ontario we had the lowest unemployment rate in in 20 years a couple months ago which is crazy to think that people are working population is growing. They're just, you know, I think people are just a little bit scared about what's happening, but I think the smart investors look and see the future and see that we're still going to undersupply the market. There's, there's no way we're going to, despite all these moves that the government's continued to make, we're still going to undersupply the market. And in the long run, that, that number is going to go up. So any, any thoughts from, from, from you on the on the sales market? In, yeah, in, I mean, I would say that
0: the stats probably quite accurate in, in our world. And that is a function largely of what Harley touched on is the fact that we've released less projects this year. And the projects we're releasing, we're strategically looking our portfolio to bring projects that are, I think, safer, a little bit more risk averse into the marketplace. You know, we're not launching some of our large scale two tower with a podium connected type of, of projects that require a high absorption level. We're looking at our projects that are maybe, you know, 250 to 350 units that are absorbable in the marketplace and that we anticipate even in a strong market to be a little bit of a longer sales cycle. So maybe a bit of a, more of a, a balance between the investor and end user type of product that we're putting out and putting out responsibly, but definitely that's impacted our sales volume this year. I think going into next year, I mean, I I agree with Harley, no crystal ball over here, but I do feel very positive about um, the rate announcement later in October, um, and we're we're moving some of our projects forward or moving them along in the anticipation of the market potentially having some upward potential into 2024
1: so yeah. interesting interesting and so to, uh,
2: to, go ahead to aaron's point it was, it was a good point i mean um i think that some of the projects that have come out are smaller in scale yeah. um last year in the last six months um yeah q3 and q4 um, of last year, we brought out two projects that were well over 850 units and, you know, big towers. We haven't seen very much of that this year. Um, so I do think it's, it's a difference in that, you know, projects are smaller and a lot fewer projects have come to market. And it is really important. Uh, it could be 50%. Yeah
1: yeah and um yeah i mean that's when i whenever i do charts and some of the charts i do for for the baker reports and we that shows pricing coming down i always want to point out that there's so few launches happening in downtown toronto a lot of the toronto launches quote unquote amalgamated city are happening in etobicoke scarborough and and north york right so there's you know other than you know allure and then just recently, Park Park Road from uh, that the Baker's representing. There's been almost nothing that's in a higher price bracket, right? So sure. uh, interesting that. You know the suburbs haven't doesn't seem to be doing as well, but the inner suburbs is still seem to be doing all right. That's it seems to be the 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 snack bracket that people are interested in. Other than of course the multiple tower sellout in Markham. <laughs> we want to just quickly touch on that one. What, what was the, the well? Was it's the, not Marlin
0: Springs. Project, yeah, it wasn't Marlin Springs. So I don't spring, know, but maybe, maybe kudos to kudos maybe to maybe Metropia touch a little bit for on sure. why that one
1: was so so <laughs> successful. That project.
2: For sure. I mean, it was a huge success. We've seen through Baker, I think we're now on our sixth or seventh successful launch of this year. Um not all can be successes and we know that in this marketplace And it's harder now than ever and I don't think we ever saw a market where everything was successful. Um Union City was special. We actually had a at a win near the start of the year also at Olive at Young and Finch, but again, I will I will go back to Aaron's Point. We didn't sell an 850 unit tower at all. It's a 300 unit building. Um Park Road is also a 300 unit building. Um Union City, we sold about 1200 units in about 3 months the first two towers in a matter of uh, three weeks. Um, We got through the first 10 days rescission period. I think on day 12, we released the second tower. So we got through the first two towers very quickly. We did wait a couple months before we brought out the third tower. Um, Markham is special. Um, We were kind of ground zero for a community buying real estate at that time. Uh, We had the smallest units Markham has ever seen. um, And (laughs) therefore a good end price. And yeah. what's very important is that end price. We are also part of a huge master plan development. We had a go station across the street one way and a brand new York University campus across the street the other way. So um, it is kind of ground zero, transit, school, and um, Unionville happens to be one of the, the highest yeah. uh, net worth areas yeah. out there. Um, it's kind of a win-win. Yeah. I, think I think yeah. I'll
1: add also on the supply and demand. There really had been hardly any launches in Markham of, in all of 2021 and 2022. So there had been hardly any projects that had come to market. Yeah, no, that was kind of shocking how well you guys did on that. So let's jump a little bit in, into the, uh, you know, actually it's a good segue in, in terms of in terms of Markham because... I conducted a study for, for Baker on uh, the postal codes of the residences of buyers at Baker going back 15 years. And there was a huge percentage of those buyers lived in Richmond Hill and Markham. Um, and most of the buyers are, you know, GTA-based investors. So, uh, against what, you know, the media always talks about all the foreign buyers and yada, yada, yada. Um, many of these buyers are, you know, they're not white, but they are Canadians, long-time Canadians you know, this is kind of a silly question, but why do you think, you know, minorities love buying pre-construction condominiums? And do you think, it's kind of a two-part question, and do you think the discussion over foreign buyers has been way overblown and maybe well uh, I'll let you take that one uh, Aaron I know it's a, uh, <laughs> it was yeah. a, it was a winding question to get to where I was getting to but uh, I'll let I you take that I think I
0: have an answer um I know for us in terms of our our overall portfolio we probably have and we studied this a lot obviously when the the and foreign buyers came in and just looking at the impact of our portfolio. And it's about 1% of our buyers at the end of the day. Um, We even put in international deposit structures, but we rarely even put them on our price list because the, the, probability of that actually coming to fruition is is fairly low um so yeah i do think there it is overblown i think there's a lot of foreign money coming in and buying real estate but in terms of the ownership thereof that's a very different conversation so the funding of particular real estate transactions maybe from you know maybe from family members or or Overseas, but it's not necessarily something that is making it into tr- into the transaction itself by way of the verification of ID or, or, or addresses. Yeah. It's, it's local.
1: Anything you want and, to add?
0: Yeah, well,
2: we, we actually did a report on it. I thought you might have been involved. Now I'm not 100% sure. But we did a report on it over the last, I think it's the last 10 years um, through Baker Sales, and we were at about 4% as an average throughout the last 10 years. Um, I think that... Um, uh, some of our projects lend themselves a little bit more um, to that that international buyer, some of these big downtown core towers. Um, and never mind that, we went out and sought after these buyers. We take roadshows to, we used to have, an, we had an office in Singapore, we had one in China, to be honest, they're kind of dormant right now. We've held phone numbers, but we can't use them because we can't sell into those markets currently. Um, and we, we are still actually working very actively with our office in Hong Kong because we um, People who are are in Hong Kong who have Canadian uh, citizenship can still buy, Um, but the majority of the markets are out today. But we have gone on roadshows throughout uh, Dubai, China, um, all over Singapore, we did a lot of deals, um, and still less than 5% of our transactions, like I think it was just under four, rounding up to four. Um, over the last 10 years have been international.
1: Yeah. And, and taking that into account, because I did work on it, was you represented a Chinese-based developer. And so the sales there. in those buildings were like super high, right? Which they just brought in their own, some of their own buyers. So if you took that out, it probably would have been even lower, right? So yeah, pretty interesting. I mean, I think there is a very negative context about investors buying and, and especially money coming from overseas. But essentially... The way I see it is, it's just crowd crowdfunding a real estate development. It's just crowdfunding equity in a development project, right? You know, developers want to borrow against the deposits, and if in the, in the lenders like if that deposit group is diversified, right? and so you've got. 700 purchasers in a 900 unit building and they've all agreed to pay this, you know, 20% down before occupancy. I, I mean that's that's a great way of doing business and we we want money. Our governments go out and try to get foreign companies to come in here and bring in foreign dollars, but for some reason in real estate, we don't want it to happen. We think that they're we're crowding out Canadians, but you know, when I started in the business, the tallest towers that we had were 25 stories. Right. And it was a slog to sell those buildings. Right. It took uh, took a year, a year and a half to sell 125 units to get construction financing because it was, you know, 20, 30 percent investors. So now we have, you know, 95, 99 story buildings like what was uh, what was the tallest one you guys did in, in Mississauga?
2: I think we're eighty-three.
1: Eighty-three, like 83. unbelievable, right? Mm-hmm. Like to think that you could build an eighty-three-story tower in Mississauga, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 how tall do you think that building would be if it had no investors, right? You know, <laughs> it'd probably be twenty stories, right? You know. So, anyways, there's there's a question coming eventually here that I'll uh, <laughs> that I'll get to. So. Um well, I guess the question is about I mean this has been going on for 15 years but I guess because you're so involved in it I want to ask it to you. So when you run the math on new condos completed over the last couple of years based on a 20% down a lot of them are cash flow negative at occupancy. So how are investors looking at these purchases? Are they thinking, you know, three to five year investments and they're going to sell at, at completion? Are they thinking 10 to 15 year investments where, you know, they're taking into consideration, uh, future rent growth. Are we seeing, are we seeing a lot of buyers that intend to hold for life or in pass the units, you know, down to their, to their kids, any comments, you know, on the mindset of investors, you know, previously, or, or and has that changed now? I know you probably talked to a lot more investors than, than most people. What's, What's the sense you're getting in terms of their financial outlook on on buying condominiums? It's a good question. It's, it's a
2: tough one because if you look at the price you're paying on a pre-construction deal today, it is not going to match... price of a resale condo today, or it's not going to cash positive, cash flow positive on the price of today's rental. You're Mm -hmm. 100% right. Um, A lot of people are investing, including myself, on the future growth of this city. And um, you said it very early on in the podcast, we have a housing problem here. We do not have enough homes. And I think that is, it's in the media, but I don't think it's remotely loud enough. Um, We're going to have people who are going to show up here with bags of money and have to live on the streets because there's no there's not enough homes with the number of people moving into this country never mind the city and so people are moving farther and farther outside of the city people are commuting I see all these funny crazy stories where people are driving two three hours because that's where they have to live Um, people are living in people's kitchens like there is a, a situation right now where there's not enough inventory so what happens historically in situations like this is pricing goes up but rents go up as fast if not faster and I think our rents while they are it's a hot topic in the city they're very high especially high for um, you know the cost of living we have here they are gonna skyrocket rents have to go up to keep up with the price it costs to build a replacement unit and if they don't then I think you're going to, I mean, they have to, they have to for, mm. for developers building purposeful rental. They have to for uh, people investing in condos. So we are going to see rents go up. Um, so now you're talking about investing in something today that you're not getting for four years, five years, some of these projects, seven, eight you mm-hmm. know, years yeah. plus um, the rents moving up at the speed they've already moved up. And then potentially even moving up faster should be able to cover. So I do think people are buying with the future outlook of this city. Um, and, I do think that if someone is cash flow negative, of you know, hundred bucks, two hundred bucks, when they get their unit, it's not going to take long to reset that. And by the time they're actually thinking about selling this, and you ask a question, what are investors looking for? I would say that there's people who want to hold for two, and there's people who want to hold for fifteen, and I think it has a lot to do with age, family status, uh, etc. Um, but most people are buying them to hold them medium to long term and it's the right play that's how you make money in real estate yeah. people are making money in real estate i mean they have in the last couple of years some people have bought real estate and made some money pretty fast um, but in general you buy real estate so your uh, kids can be rich yeah <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm buying them for my daughter right now. Yeah. My, and, and my, my to be son coming.
0: I think there's a uh, different types of investors too. There's quite savvy investors that have been in the real estate market and done a number of transactions over the years and kind of I think experienced the the highs and the lows of the market and understand the value in holding real estate long term. And then there's a lot of investors that maybe, you know, getting their feet wet, dabbling, purchasing something they feel like. They've seen other people make money on investments, and so they want to to try it. And I think this market right now is kind of, um, it's telling us a little bit about the different profiles of the investor base. I know for our projects, um, we've seen a decline in, inv- in assignments for sure. And I think some of that is, you know, the assignment market's quite challenging at the moment. But also, you know, it you need to sell at quite a high value to offset you know, the cost of that unit after you're, you've paid your taxes and your real estate fees and everything going into that actual transaction against that assignment, you know, you don't, you don't walk away with very much. I mean, to say you make 100 on the sale of a unit via assignment, you're probably less than half of that by the time you walk away and, you know, you're paying your capital gains, you're paying your agent and all these different variables that go into that sale. So I think people are also recognizing the value in holding long term as an investment, And kind of moving maybe a little more away from the assignment market, unless they're in situations that, you know, they've bought in and and their intention from the get go was to potentially assign knowing that. They didn't want to close on yeah. the unit, so some different profiles and some, I think, some different mindsets in today's yeah. market.
1: how I know that you guys recently completed the uh, it's the Stockyards project, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and did you have any trouble closing any of the units there? What was the any feedback you can share about about the purchaser profile in that project and any any? Potential yeah, issues? I mean,
0: we're well thankfully protected a lot by the deposits. I mean, I think the decline that project was sold. Um, before the uptick in pricing through 2019 and into into COVID and that. But, you know, so we're quite lucky with the end prices being reasonable and appraising at a reasonable value where we did get into some issues. And I'd say we had about a 3% um, in or around a 3% delinquency rate was in our Tail end units that were sold at higher values that were getting appraised at maybe a different a different level than the actual purchase price and solving for that delta became a bit of a challenge. So, yeah. but overall it was it was actually quite successful and we were, were actually in the midst of finalizing our our final closings at a townhouse site in Durham and it's the same it's the same process. We're we're very happy with the number of closings and a less delinquency rate actually shocking than than stockyards. Um, but okay. again it's those tail units tail end units that were Sold at the height of COVID, that you know people are looking back and you know struggling. I think with the purchase price versus what they're seeing in the resale and in their yeah. own community and, and what it's getting
1: appraised at. So, what kind of solutions are you guys offering? Are you sending them to s- specific lenders that might be able to do something short term? Are you guys offering any type of financing from yourselves to get these people to close, or, or are you just saying? Wave goodbye and and no, we don't like uh, to especially when the, <laughs> say see you later. We'll take the unit back. See no, I mean we're
0: we're I'd like to say that we're we're a nice developer at heart. So you know we <laughs> want we want people to to close on the homes and ultimately not to lose deposits that they've worked really hard to save for. I mean these people are in these homes for upwards of a hundred thousand dollars, and that's meaningful money for for people that want to actually live in live in these homes. So we try to work with our purchasers. We do have a VTB program that we offer out and you know, it's, it's, hard for some, and doesn't always work with the, because we're a second position, so it doesn't always work with the primary lender, but it's an opportunity that we give to people and we try and work very hard to to get our purchasers over the line for sure.
1: Interesting. And from, from your perspective, Harley, are you having any of your developer clients say, hey, can you start reaching out to some of our buyers, like closing's coming up in six months to, or has anyone, any of the developers asked you to start doing some outreach to purchasers to see if there's any potential issues that they can catch beforehand?
2: Simple answer is yes. Um, it's not particularly um, six months out or not, but as we're getting ready to to get to re- kind of registration phase, is when we're starting to have those conversations. Okay. Um, but similar to what Aaron's saying, and I actually think this is not what's being portrayed out there. Um, we're seeing almost every unit close. Not every unit, uh, you know, there are some 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 people who just can't close. Life changes, yeah. um, but. Almost every one of those people is finding someone to assign it to as well. Um, it's not a, uh, you know, it's not a huge percentage. Um, almost every single unit we've had close, and we we're going through a lot of closings right now um, are closing. There are a few. Yeah, um, we do attempt to help them any way we can. It's not as I mean, it all goes back to our clients, and we deal with some fantastic developers, um, and they're always there to try to figure out how to get the deals closed. And you know, we pitch in and we do everything we can. Um, but I like, you know, we closed one, it was 550 units and we ended up with about three that didn't end up closing or something. Wow. Like it's not a, we just closed a smaller building, 120, 200 unit, uh, 120, 130 unit building. And I think every single one closed. So I, we are seeing units close.
0: Yeah. And how much people want to close? I mean, they're, they're very keen, even if there's a little bit of a Delta between, you know, maybe what the purchase price was and the, like. The valuation in the here and now, people are eager and and want to close the units, which has been something that's been I think eye opening for us because sometimes you think that there it might be a there might might not be as much heart in the decision. You know, we're sitting back in the office and transacting in real estate, and then you come to these closings and people are are coming to you and having real conversations, and it's it's been a really interesting I think like a bit of a reset in the context of our buyers and the importance of providing housing.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I, I mentioned it tons of times in the podcast. I used to give presentations for banks all the time. And that would be the first thing they asked me, like every single time before I even started the presentation, any closing risk? Any, any projects not closing? Any not closing? And I'm like... <laughs> This, you know, back then it was like this building launched at $350 a square foot. It's now $650 a square foot. So, yeah, I mean, even if anyone had something going wrong in their life, there was someone that was willing to take the the unit off their hands, even at a significant, you know, uh, um, profit for that for that developer. So. Um, this is a bit of a long question again, but I'm going to jump into this one. So, um, they continue I mean, we, we've talked about it, but there continues to be a lot of focus on the number of condo apartments owned by investors. Um, um, this seems to be a lot of people that are kind of uneducated about how the development industry works, uh, and think that we should be banning, uh, investors, um, you know, here are some figures that I wanted to, to read off, and these are from CMHC. There were 460,000 condominium apartments in the Toronto CMA per, uh, per CMHC, more than double the amount from 2008. Uh, CMHC estimates that 37% of those units are rented out, up from 19% in 2007. So the number of investor-held units is up fourfold to so 168,000. Uh, in, in this is again uh, as of October 2022. You know, I th- you know, we don't talk about this enough, and I, when I talk about it, people say, you're lying, you're just part of the industry, but it would be interesting to have another person talk about this. You know, from your perspective, paint us a picture. What would the supply situation look like without investors? How big would the buildings be? How long would it take to sell them? Would there be fewer sites? You know, is there, is, is there something you can speculate, a grand speculation, what, what, what you think would happen if, if investors were banned in the market? What do you think would happen to the new development industry?
2: I think it'd be tough for the new development industry. I think we'd be uh, in a world where we're going to have to see, we would have to see a lot more purpose-built rentals built. Yeah. Um, rents, rental, uh, percentage of rental units being up um, does not surprise me in the slightest. I'm sure it doesn't surprise Aaron because we we talk about these things a lot. Um, it, the city is becoming less and less affordable and uh, people need a place to live and it's uh it it helps to have someone else put down that large deposit that you may not be able to come up with uh, it helps to have somebody else um you know worry about all the maintenance and move into something and you know your set fee of two thousand dollars a month three thousand dollars a month whatever that rent is and so we're finding more and more people are coming to the city moving into the city, even if they grew up in the suburbs, and they're looking for rentals, they're not looking to purchase. And that's where the investor, and I I do have a reason for saying this, but that's where the investor comes in. So the investor is great to get buildings built. The investor comes in on day one, they're looking at a time value on their money, their returns on their money, and how they can make money over the next five years, seven years, 20 years. It depends on the investor and the project. And they're looking at how do I do this long term. A lot of the end users walk in and say, I don't know where I'm going to want to live in five years. (laughs) Like I am now, I think for the first time in my life and I'm in my mid forties. Um, but I'm in a place right now where I have a a two year old daughter, a son on the way and a wife dog. And I think I can tell you where I'll be in five years, but I'm not even a hundred (laughs) percent sure. Um, but I can tell you when I, 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 bought my fair share of condos, I bought multiple units that I never moved into because they just weren't for me. Um, the first unit I ever bought to move into was a, actually I bought an assignment. Um, but I bought an assignment unit because I needed something to move into immediately because I you know, I was finished university, I had nowhere to live and I happened to be in real estate so it made a lot of sense to buy. Um, and pricing was a lot less expensive so a lot easier to get into the market back then. Um, but I think the investors are incredibly important because, yes, buildings wouldn't be built. Um, you would take a long time to sell, but also you'd have to find, even if it was a 150 unit building, um, you <laughs> you would have to find 150 people who are ready to commit to where they're going to be in five years. And it's a tough decision. Yeah. So we are, we are seeing these investors come in and they facilitate the development process, which is great, but then they also help facilitate places for people to live when they need to move in and they're looking for a rental unit and there's no good rental stock in the market just because of the number of rental units that have been built over the yeah. last
1: 10, 15 years. Yeah. So, so Aaron, I know that you have a couple of buildings there at, uh, that are kind of more end user like a little more hi- higher end how do you how do you view the the process of selling to a building that's you know 70 80% investors versus selling these buildings with a lot of end users i, I imagine it's much more of a of a slog to to get through the end user building
0: yeah i mean our primary market is is mid market condominiums yeah. so you know we do have a lot of, of reliance on the investor base and i think the investor base takes a lot of different shapes. You know, I kind of touched on that before, that it can be, you know, somebody that maybe thinks they they want to live in something and then they change their mind. So three years down the line, they turn into an investor because... They got married in the term of, of the completion of the condo and yeah. their lifestyles change. So even the profile, of the buyers can change dramatically over the life of the condominium. So yeah. to say, like, who's an investor and who's not? I mean, that's I don't know how you'd ever be able to manage or, mm-hmm. or define that in the context of the marketplace. Yeah. Um, I think the end user market is a little bit different in the way that we cater to that particular buyer, the conversion time is a little bit longer. And, you know, I think it's, we're very time-based, our business, and, you know, we have pretty aggressive absorption schedules. So we definitely rely on that launch and that uptick and momentum at the start of the site to to keep the project moving toward the construction timeline that we anticipate so it's a huge part of the market and i think the condominium market generally in terms of meeting our our timelines and being able to also feed that end user market at the tail end of the project a couple of years down the line you do always have product you know you've got your 20 to 30% that you're selling through over the course of time so there's inventory available for all types i think of buyers and you know i always laugh a little bit when you know people talk about investors in the market i'm like I just bought a unit as an end user, I intend to move into it. And I would like for it to make money when I go and sell it several years from now. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. But I I think everybody gets into real estate wanting to make a profit on their unit. So what is an investor? Anyone that's buying piece of the city wants it to go up in value for sure yeah, so I, I've, they, said, <laughs> I, I've,
1: I've said that on twitter before when someone saw the investors all they did want to make money i'm like okay when you sell your house are you going to sell it for what you paid for i'm like i'm pretty sure you're not going to right yeah. you're the same person that goes to a community meeting and, and complains about the, their property value when a new condo is coming in but uh yeah i mean i think i think we need to realize that buying something now that's not going to be completed until 2027 or 2028 or 2029 takes in a lack of you know in a cringe way it takes some it takes some balls it takes some uh, taking some risk the project could get canceled right you're putting 15% down now and another 5% at 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 occupancy and in someone that's buying for their own purposes or for that if they want to move in, they could buy something in the resale market with 5% down that they can walk through and get a look at. It, and it's real, all right? Uh, they can see where they're going to park. They say, we're going to put the couch, right? You know, it's it's much different uh, process. So we need these people that are willing to take a risk that can see the future, right? Because it costs more to build a new condominium than the price of an existing condominium. And I think it's hard for people to, to understand that, like the prices of goods now, and the, the cost of labor and the cost of capital is more expensive now than this building that's completed, right? So it's going to cost more. Uh, and people just don't seem to understand that, right? They're like, why is it more than a resale? All right. I, I agreed.
2: Yeah, we get that question all the time too.
1: It doesn't make any sense. Why is it so much more than that? like well
2: that was built five years ago how much were your eggs five years ago yeah it kills like like the i always i judge what's happening in inflation because of egg prices (laughs) i eat a lot of eggs clearly (laughs) but like i cannot believe the price of eggs and i know that's ridiculous uh, statement but like i watched i used to buy eggs and they were like a dollar to us and i don't want to sound like i'm that old but like and now like i'm buying a a little thing of eggs, for like seven or eight dollars. <laughs> I, it, it, I don't know. I feel like I should look into the inflation of eggs before I use that as my statement. But I feel like like they've outpaced inflation. Um, but everything else. So as
0: is as dry pasta. pasta? That's what we use as a barometer. So.
2: Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Clearly,
1: clearly we're on similar diets, but slightly different. Yours is a, a little bit more, more, carb. Carb, yeah. more carb heavy. Um, um, yeah. I guess you know we we've kind of beaten the investor thing to death here. But I have another more a couple more questions. Um you know I help out obviously and and doing some reports for Baker on you know designing the sweet mix but we have this growing up guidelines we have political pressures to build large units I know that you know even at your stockyard projects I think I got an email a couple months ago with some three bedroom units that you had available so there seems Very to be big. this people <laughs> saying that they want three bedroom units and the the, mar- the market deserves three bedroom units but they always seem to be the last ones to sell so um, you know, any comments on, you know, the government kind of trying to put their hand into, into the, uh, into the market for, for large units and where do you see that there is demand for large units? There actually was some pretty strong price growth for larger units, but you know, any comments from either you, you two on the large unit market?
0: I think demand-wise, we actually saw an uptick through COVID that there was a lot of demand for the larger product, and yeah. I think that was just a function of the work from home and the the mindset of the population at that time. But it hasn't really changed or moved the needle in a in, in, a, in a consistent way. We're see we see that that's changed in the last couple launches that we've been through. That demands waned a little bit. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, in the city of Toronto, we've got the the ten percent that we need to commit to in terms of our three-bedroom product, and it is a challenge. It's definitely, especially because you know we're we're looking to get to a particular target, not just from a percentage sold, but from a revenue percentage. So a lot of your revenue is captured and, and held in these units that are fairly unsellable at the onset of a project to your investor base, et cetera. And because of the price points and the deposit required, they tend to move less slowly. So you usually move them when you're introducing a lower deposit structure or closer to completion for an end user. Yeah. Um, but it is a challenge. I'm actually supportive of it. I do think having a product mix and a, a demographic mix in your communities, be it families, singles, you know, couples, I think it lends to the overall um, appeal and the way that we structure our communities generally as developers. So I do think it is a good thing. I think the mandate to kind of within those confines also control the sizing thereof is a bit of a challenge because obviously you want to create efficient units and us as developers need to look at our efficiency and what what we're selling for and how many units we can actually yield in a particular plate. So it gets a little challenging when you start to feel like there's an imposition on the size parameters. Um, but generally, I we're quite supportive of it.
1: Interesting. Interesting. I know from a sales perspective, it's always a little bit challenging because you want to <laughs> get them all sold right away. But.
2: Well, but the problem with the sales perspective is um, it's didn't go back to the investor question, but it's who's buying the condominiums and um, most of the people that are buying them in the early days are looking for a good price point. And, once you get anywhere and near and, point, and, selling, and price, selling price. And point, selling yeah. price. Once you get anywhere near a million dollars and definitely over a million dollars, all of your financing changes. It becomes harder to get a mortgage approval. It becomes hard to actually get a mortgage because you are going to close on this thing, whether it be three or seven years yeah. from the day you buy it. Um, and to Aaron's point, you need a higher deposit. You don't need a higher deposit in a percentage, but you need a higher deposit because a three bedroom unit is Two and a half times the price of a one-bedroom unit or twice the price of a one-bedroom unit.
1: So you're looking at $150,000, $200,000 down payment, right? Or more. more. Yeah, Yeah. or significantly more.
2: (laughs) And so so now it's more cash out of pocket. A lot of your investors are going to look at what my return is, and your return on investment's going to... The the unit has to go up a lot higher in value to get that same return on a larger deposit. Um, So a lot of the investors who come in are are not focused on the three bedrooms. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean they won't sell. It means they're not focused on it. The city has 100% required um, larger units, whether it be the 10% um, in Toronto, the three bedrooms, or, you know, growing up guidelines you mentioned where certain percentages of units have to be certain sizes. Those are... 100% for a lower kind of price per square foot, but a higher end price because they are larger units. They are the last ones to go. Um, We represent 50 plus projects um, in market right now. Every single one of those I have, I shouldn't say every single one, but a lot of those I have two and three bedrooms. Um, we talked about uh, Union City earlier, and it's a great example. Um, we blew out that project. We had more worksheets than all three towers combined on the first building, and I stole three bedrooms for you if you want one. <laughs> um, uh, and that's, that is the reality of this marketplace. Yeah. The one thing I will point out is actually, I actually think it's a great investment in Union City, the three bedroom. One of the other things that I find interesting about a blanket city of Toronto buildings need a three-bedroom count is there are areas in the city where it is very hard to find a school to send your kid Mm -hmm. to. And most people aren't buying three-bedroom units to be single and hang out in. Um, So they're buying three-bedroom units to live there with their families. And I actually, until I had a six-month-old and we did move out of the condo, but I was living, I had a daughter and and a wife and a dog and we all lived in a three-bedroom condo. But one of the problems is there's, you don't have the same facilities in the city. You don't have the same daycares. You don't have the same schools. And so it almost should be a little bit more targeted. If you ask me, I don't create policy. I would change a few of them if I did. But it should be targeted where three bedrooms you need in areas that are growing and families are moving into and, and they're investing in daycares and schools. But we're seeing them just across the board in areas yeah. that, that I, there's no, you know, we're seeing areas where there's. Students moving in, and you get three students as a investment yeah. perspective, yeah.
1: but not so much in a area that's family oriented. Yeah, I, I know. When back, back when Adam Vaughn wanted three bedroom units and all his entertainment district projects. And I would ask those developers, are any families buying I'm like no, investors buying it or a move down empty nester that's coming from, you know, a 2000, 2500 square foot house and they're moving down to 900 square feet. And that's a big decline for most people. Right. Uh, but we do instead, a lot
0: um, in Etobicoke and that's a great market, I think, for the three bedroom products. Yeah. And, you know, it's I thinking of this but but you mentioned stockyards and we still have inventory there still three bed inventory it's quite large it's about I mean it's very large it's you know 1300 or so square feet for some of these units so they're they're sky lofts in fact and you know beautiful units but the challenge in some of the areas is you know when you look at the comparable price versus a semi or a detached in a neighborhood if a family's looking at a product type and you know you're a million two, a million one, a million two, and you can get a detached in that same neighborhood for a million one, a million two, you lose a little bit of leverage, obviously, in the the absorption on your three bedroom units. The majority of an end, end user buyer looking for more space, looking to house a family, is going to gravitate far more likely to a detached product in that community. You don't have the same luxury of having that detached profile in a lot of the other communities that we build in. Um, But in, yeah, in particular communities, particularly because you mentioned stockyards, that's one of the big challenges for us for sure with that product.
1: Yeah. I mean, We've been talking about the need for larger units, and then you drive around the city and you'll see a um, development application, and beside it, there's also like a TDSB sign that says, "Be aware if you move into this project, there's not going to be enough room for you to, for your kids to go to school." So, it's, so it's kind of crazy. But then that same that <laughs> same piece of information is in the agreement of
2: purchase and sale when wow. you purchase. Yeah, huh. it's that same warning clause. But I think
0: that you know, well, it'll force us to get creative with how we look at those three bedroom units and different ways to to shape them and bring them to market to accommodate maybe a a more broad based demographic through the design of those units. And there's, We'll talk about it on the podcast, but we've got some interesting things happening as it relates to that <laughs> product type and yeah, we're excited to, yeah. we'll share it yeah. <laughs> one day. Well,
1: I, I, <laughs> I, I spoke about, uh, I, uh, I spoke on the phone with this, uh, this, this woman, she has a company called Rhina. I'm not sure if you heard of that, but she basically like will go to uh, uh investors or go to purpose-built rental uh, developers that have larger units and she'll manage like the, the lease up. She'll, she'll find three like unrelated females to, to live together in that unit so that they're in charge of their third of the rent and they're not responsible if those other two people for whatever reason screw off right so i think that's a good model that uh that hopefully I mean, there's others that are doing it, but that was the one that just popped popped into my head. So I think we could probably sell a few more of these three bedroom units if investors knew that there was a way, an easy way for someone to manage that entire process that had a system in place to replace those tenants when, when someone came out and, and was responsible for it. If, if, if some of them left. So, uh, it's interesting. I mean, rents are getting so expensive. I mean, it's just unbelievable. The, <laughs> like one bedrooms at $2,800 a month. Like, um, But just getting back to that family thing, when I was renovating my house, we were looking for a a three bedroom for rent. And I wanted to live in an apartment. I'm like, I want to live in I want to have some views because this is not the way I'm, I'm going to live for, for a while. And, and yeah, so those three bedroom apartments that were a thousand to 1200 square feet were three thousand thirty seven hundred dollars 3700 a month, but I could still rent a 1600 to 1800 square foot townhome for about the same price. And it would have two parking spaces. All right. So it was like, ah, uh, yeah, I kind of see how, you know, even as a tenant, this doesn't work. Right. But you now as an owner, the gap is even is even wider. So,
2: and you brought up the rental piece and I agree. That's the way you make it work. Right. So, um, we just launched a project. I crossed you from Ryerson and we did really well in our three bedrooms. We blew the three bedrooms. They're one of our our top sales product, which is very unusual. Um, But we just blew them out the door and we were literally like staring. You're across you from Ryerson. You're staring at Ryerson. Um, It was great to see. It made us all very happy because we love selling that product. It really doesn't happen (laughs) very often. Um, But to your point... People weren't buying it to move families, yeah. In to Young and Dundas. people were buying it because they're looking at renting this out to students, and they're going to rent it to three separate students, do exactly yeah. what you're talking about, and make a higher rent than they would on something else. It's an yeah. interesting yeah. way you'd to look rent, at it. You
1: probably rent it for seventeen hundred, two thousand dollars a right. room, right? Right. So you end but, up getting six grand for that suite, right?
2: But I take it back, and I don't want this to be like a political conversation. It shouldn't be, but like take that back. Then why are you forcing the developer to build this ten percent if? It's not families. I yeah. understand why you want families to move into yeah. the city. Um, but if it's going to be a rental product, then, you know, let people kind of rent it yeah. and invest in yeah. what they're looking I for. I think
1: the, the viewpoint from a politician will be, and and it's partly my view, is things will be cheaper in, uh, in the future. So older buildings are always cheaper. So we have to build the units in 2023 that will be the cheap units in 2048. (laughs) Those will be the cheap units for families, right? So we have to build them today for them to be the cheaper units. So whenever I hear someone complain, like, what's the use of even building any new housing? It's not expensive. It's too expensive for regular people. I'm like, well, you know, do you drive a new car? No you buy a used car right okay Uh, a five-year-old uh used car well if they didn't build any of these new cars that it's too expensive for you how would you ever drive a five-year-old used car right so it has to be build building these new cars now for you to get that cheaper one in five years from now so that's the benefit that i see but um i agree as long as it comes with the infrastructure yeah yeah, for sure. Yeah, you have to have the schools. I mean, the daycares. You know, for someone that has a small kid, unbelievably expensive. Uh, to think, for a while there, I was paying more for daycare than I was my mortgage. Right, like just unbelievable. And I drew. I drove my kids to Scarborough to go to the daycare. I didn't go to the the one that was closest to us because it was too expensive. So clearly,
2: it was not in today's interest rates.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, my my mortgage payment is pretty high now. So. <laughs> 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 um we've talked a little i've talked a little bit about this on the podcast before but you know 15 years ago developers were reluctant to offer units without parking because buyers and investors wanted them and demanded them but you know developers obviously pushed back um and uh, and obviously parking ratios have fallen pretty significantly there's buildings downtown now with essentially no parking, right? You know, like 5%, 10% in some of these, these buildings. But there seems to be that same kind of impetus happening now with balconies, um, with investors being reluctant to, to purchase a unit without an outdoor space, but developers, you know, pushing back due to the higher, you know, green building standards. So, the question ultimately is, are investors dictating what gets built or are developers pushing for change and investors going along for the ride? Uh, you know, Harley, any thoughts on on balconies and what investors are, are thinking? You probably don't have a lot of, you probably don't sell a lot of units without balconies, but, you know, any thoughts there? So... It was like a three-part question. It with all three.
2: <laughs> so there's no question that less parking is being built and less parking is being sold and therefore less parking exists in, in the newer buildings that are coming out. Um, we actually have just two launches this fall with zero parking. And they're both subway locations, so it makes a lot of sense. Um, You're going to see people who move into these buildings who don't have cars. We're seeing that a lot, I mean, through COVID, cars got a lot more expensive. Um, And we're seeing that less and less people are moving or have cars, and people are Ubering, car sharing, all of these great things that exist in our city, and cost, in general, less money than owning a car. There's conveniences to owning a car, but less money. So... Um, there's, there's fewer people with cars. And to your point earlier, we're looking at twice as many rentals as we had before. And a lot of the renters are not don't have their own cars. Yeah. And so as an investor buying it, they have to buy a unit. They have to pay a, a decent price for a parking spot. And, um, and they have to pay monthly to for the maintenance fees on that parking spot. And they have to hold that as part of their mortgage. And so we're seeing less and less investors looking for parking spots. And therefore, the builders are building less of them. My understanding, and Aaron should talk to this more than me, my understanding is it costs more money to build a parking spot than you're going to sell it for in almost any market. Yeah. And if that's the case, then the developer's losing money on it, the investor's not looking at buying it, and the end user's not looking at needing it. So we are seeing kind of like a triple win on the parking situation. Again, Aaron can disagree on that part after if she wants, but I think that I'm think i pretty sure that's the way it's working on the, the cost side.
0: Yeah, no, that's it's very true. And it, obviously they got rid of the parking minimums, so it's actually a big win for developers in that context it used to be you know we would build on an Etobicoke, and i up to recently we'd have a one-to-one parking ratio and that's i think we went with our second building out there and we were able to get you know i want to say it was like 0.75 i'd have to go back to the stats um but now i mean if you can substantiate uh, you, you have to put a case forward you can go to the city and get a zero parking whereas before they would implement parking minimums so you don't have to have a like a certain ratio for your building or a particular location so that's freed up a lot because parking inventory we were never selling a one-to-one in our buildings even when you know it was mandated that we do it and even in locations that aren't right on the young street subway line so it's been really beneficial for us because we can reduce our parking levels. And to Harley's point, you're totally right. It's a very expensive proposition to go down. And depending on the site and the location, it can be very costly. And it's it's hard, very hard to recover that through the sale of the parking units. And dealing with parking inventory is very frustrating at the end of a project. I have projects (laughs) that have been around for a long time and the conversation every once in a while is like, what about those parking spots? I go, right, right, right. (laughs) We have to sell those still. Um, So it's, it's a very, we're very happy about it. We still try in particular locations to keep it at, you know, an end user type of number, maybe a 0.25 or a 0.3 parking ratio, depending on the location. I know some guys have put out like zero parking and I'm very curious to see how that plays out in the terms of the sales of the larger product. I yeah. think, you know, you, you may have some locations where it has no impact and then you may have locations where maybe a level of parking would have been, would have been beneficial. So, you know, each project, you got to do your own pro forma and see what, works for you in terms of your absorption propositions and versus the cost of the parking. And, but yeah, for us, it's been, it's been good that that's been eliminated for sure.
1: So the sec- second part of that question is balconies. Yep. So what's, what's the, what's the, the, the latest is, is investors still insisting on having outdoor space? So a lot of investors are still looking for
2: balconies. What's interesting is um, if you're an investor looking to rent it out, a lot of the renters are actually uh, seem okay. Renting, a unit without a balcony, yeah. but there is a slight disconnect between that investor and the and the renter. Um, we are seeing more and more buildings either without balconies or with less balconies. Yeah. We have had some really big buildings without. Uh, we sold Forma as an example uh, last year, and um, Frank Gehry designed buildings do not get balconies. Looks really cool from the outside, but it did not stop us from selling that particular building. But the concept in that building is a bit more of a masterpiece type building. Yeah, um, and the balconies just don't make it look that way. Typically, we are seeing investors really um, strongly preferring balconies. And you asked who drives that realistically, if the if we talked about earlier. You need the investors to get this building under construction. It means you have to give them what they're looking for. They're not looking
1: for parking, yeah. and they are looking for balconies. Yeah, interesting. Any any uh, any different thoughts from? Yeah, I mean, if that? people
0: knew how little they would use their balconies, or how little the tenant would use the balcony, they really wouldn't mind because yeah. the majority of the balconies in the city are, are very under underutilized, if utilized at all. I'd say we have a lot of Juliettes in our projects, a lot of our mid-rise projects, but that's a function of us building. You know, we we pretty much build lot line to lot line, so we don't leave a lot of room for for overhang, and we do like to to maximize the saleable in those units, and they tend to they tend to move to the investor market. But the Juliet is is you know having an operable window in a unit is very different than having a Juliet condition. So we tend to we tend to try and get Juliet's in the majority of our projects, and you know, it, it also creates a bit of a value proposition. You know, you have people that are looking for price point and where can you find price point? Balconies have a premium to them. So it's really nice to kind of balance your, your product with a little bit of an offering that you might be able to come out at a lesser price. And that's appealing because it's attractive in the marketplace. It's good for marketing. And then if somebody wants a balcony, you've got product as well that provides for that particular demand at a higher price point. So it's nice to have a,
1: a little bit of everything. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. The, the, the two things that get, if I'm online having discussion about housing, the thing that gets people riled up the most is not having outdoor space. And I said, well, we can have a mix, right? So people can choose because we can see that, you know, like a, a developer like Tridel's is building purpose-built rentals and they're renting these units at 460 a foot with no, balconies. And I'm like, well, that just shows that some people are willing to not have them. And then the question of like the, whatever people want to call them, the, I call them the inset bedrooms, right? Where no you know, window on the outside, right? I'm like, I sleep in my bedroom. That's all I do, right? I want it to be dark. I don't need a, a window. I don't throw open the curtains with my folders in the morning, right? Like I just sleep there. That's all I do. Right. But some people, they spend a lot of their lives in their bedroom. So they want a window and that's that's something extremely important to them. But, thing that, you know, the, the fact that some people want them to be banned, it seems quite strange to me, right? Um, are you offering any, many units that are, you know, not technically a one-bedroom would be considered a studio, but has the, you know, the kind of the bedroom in the back with no, you know, window? Uh, oh, we do. Uh, yeah, I mean, we have a
0: lot of our products being in set bedrooms. And again, that goes back mostly to like our podiums, as well as our mid-rise products. We do get a lot of that just by virtue of... The, the depth of the floor plate that yeah. you, we deal with and the narrow unit style, but they meet code. They have a lot of natural light um, and they are proper bedrooms. They are proper one bedroom units in that case. And there is a market for it, but again, it's, you know, you're going back to the whole investor conversation and who, it, who that appeals to. So primarily the investor slash conversion to a rental down the line. So,
1: yeah, it's interesting because I I used to look and and Brad Lamb had a lot of those floor plans in some of his buildings because he had some unique kind of infill downtown sites that led the and he was he was always led the charge on the super small units. And so he had some, you know, bowling alley type units and they were selling at the same price per square foot as someone like, you know, Pinnacle, which which. Prides themselves on having larger units with that are more wide shallow, and they're selling at the same price per square foot. So it was always kind of interesting to, you know, to ask people in the industry like how they're selling versus versus other units, and and I, I wonder from your perspective how much the investors are assessing. The depth and the the as opposed to just the price per square foot. Any any insights there? Price per square foot.
2: I think a lot of people are kind of I won't say over, but uh, the price per square foot people look at. But I think they're really looking at what the end price is. What does a one bedroom cost me here? What does a one and den cost me here? And they dare you know it happened to be twelve hundred square foot one bedroom. It has a really good price per foot. Maybe it makes a lot of sense. I'm not saying it's not at all in the equation. Most people are looking at what does a one bedroom cost me, and it comes down to the, what's that end price today, yep. um, and the best way to bring down a unit size and therefore have a better end price is to make them thinner and you do often end up with whether it be one back bedroom or even like a two bedroom that you kind of being yang where you have a bedroom at the window and a bedroom at the back yeah. it depends on the investor some people are okay with it and some people are not i would say we're going to call it a split um, I heard nothing about people trying to ban them. I'm not quite sure why other people care if other people have back bedrooms. That's a new one for <laughs> yeah,
1: me. It always seems really strange. Yeah. Like, why? You don't have to live there. They Just don't do it. Just don't go in. Just if don't no visit one, your friend if, if you don't no want to. If no one bought to them. them, then the developer would not program them, right? <laughs> right.
2: You know, so. If you're really that against them, like if your friend has a back bedroom, don't
1: go to their house. <laughs> <laughs> to just boycott that If you friend. didn't have
0: them, you'd have a bunch of 1,000 to 1,200 square foot podium units. That also wouldn't be bedroom, appealing in the market. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Um, yeah. So, so I do think that they're needed. Um, there is a light requirement in them, um, and it's interesting because that almost makes it, um, in my opinion, slightly less appealing because you'd like the a glass or a, or a frosted glass or the glass sliding doors into mm-hmm. those rooms to your point, like I I sleep in the dark, I need to be pitch black. I like blackout curtains closed and I'm not, everyone's that way, but I need to sleep in the absolute dark. I don't think it would kill me to have a, no, I do have a window in my bedroom, but I don't think it would kill me to not have a window in my bedroom. Whereas like in my living room, I want it to be nice and bright. And I understand that. Um, so I guess it depends on the people and everyone's got a different preference and there are various demographic groups that like it or don't like it. I think there are some, um, you know, depending on, you know, how you feel about light and your life, it, it changes. Um, but in my opinion they're great units and they, they need to continue. And awesome. I'd love to know who's trying to ban them. Yeah, well, people yeah, can't. well
1: you have not spent enough time on on Twitter or Twitter, <laughs> <laughs> now, and that's probably that's probably a good thing. So um obviously we've mentioned several times, I do a little bit of work underwriting deals for, for Baker. Uh, I noticed some, you know, there's some leg- legacy clients of Baker that are, seem to be a little bit reluctant to start sales now, but in contrast, obviously, as we discussed, Marlin spring, it's been, it's been aggressive. You know, you've launched Dawes, you've launched above, you launched curio really after the interest rate uh, hikes started in, you know, April, 2022 uh, you got 316 junction in 2023. Um, you know, I guess this is, this is, I'll ask both you guys kind of similar questions, but Harley, can you comment on some of the reluctance of the developers, uh, to, to come forward and maybe Aaron, you know, what is, what has, you know, been your, what has made you guys confident enough to launch that many projects while others are, you know, kind of staying on the sidelines?
0: Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think all of those projects mentioned—they're various stages of kind of the the changes to the interest rates. I know Dawes, we launched in February, which was just prior to what I think. I think the first rate hike happened in March. March, So we just kind of, we had just skirted in when the market was great. And that project was amazing. I wish we'd released far more inventory than we did at the time because, you know, lo and behold, a couple months later, the landscape changed quite a bit. So, I mean, but that project was a little bit of a different market, even though 2022, it was still... Still strong. Mm-hmm. I think we, there was a little bit of hesitation starting to to make its way through the industry, perhaps, but still a strong market, and that project did very well. So certainly not one that we were concerned to bring out due to due to the market conditions or the macroeconomics. Yeah. Um, what else did we bring? It we brought out Curio, yeah, yeah. Curio. We brought out that one again, there had just been, I think the single rate hike and then we launched curio and then about three, two or three weeks after we launched, they did a very significant, I think it was a point like yeah. at 75 basis points or a full point. So that one was quite, uh, quite interesting for the absorption <laughs> on that project. It started out. Okay. And then that happened. And you know, my director of sales and I, Rue, we joke all the time. We're like, we'd be great to have a launch where there wasn't a rate hike. <sighs> In immediately the it. After. Cause it seems to happen quite frequently. So maybe that's a, assigns everyone in the industry is if we're launching something pay attention to the rate <laughs> to the rate announcement
2: just said there's be one in october <laughs> you're launching you. in we're october we're gonna break our
0: own curve this is gonna be the uh, one uh, project Aaron. we're changing <laughs> you can't have a hundred percent batting average so i figure yeah. this is the time where we kind of everything normalizes and works in our favor um but yeah, we're above and all the projects. But we we look at things not necessarily as a risk. I mean, it's development's twofold. I mean, sales is part of a much bigger equation in the industry. I mean, the construction side is a huge impact to the performer, far more significant than than sales. So if you can get in and under construction when there's trade availability, availability of resources. There's not a lot of competition in the marketplace for, for concrete, for forming, and for all these different like really expensive um, variables in the construction world, then to be able to capitalize on that is actually quite significant to the project. So even though we might be going out at a time where, you know, people might be looking at the absorption levels and wondering if it's a, a good time to launch, we do look at things, I mean, I can't say we look at them differently. I'm sure there's a lot of developers that look at it through the same lens, but we're certainly trying to get into a market where there's less construction because you see the adverse people are selling at, you know, a record high price per square foot, whether it be condos or townhomes. And then it's really difficult to build and make any profit because the cost of lumber is so variable and constantly rising. You know, the, Your construction costs are through the roof. You can't get trades. Your schedules are, are, are blown apart. So, you know, even selling at a really high price per square foot when there's huge absorption, if you can't bring it. To fruition through the construction program you lose a lot of that sales revenue just by virtue of time and and your hard costs so you know we feel very confident with the projects we brought out and I think going back to the point of looking at the marketplaces, I mean, we were alone in Mississauga when we launched Above and there was nothing else in that marketplace. We have a very strong partner, RioCan, in that project. So a lot of a lot of batting power in that particular site and and felt very strong about it. So calculated decisions, even though we've launched a lot, I think we've put a lot of thought into what we bring out and the process to get these through the construction phase and Dawes and Curio, Curio the crane just went up last week and Dawes is well underway. So both those sites are, are well under construction. And I think above we're targeting somewhere around Q1 of 2024. So I think we modeled out about a 12 month absorption for that project. So we launched in October, we'll be give or take, you know, almost yeah. there, but you know, <laughs> still a successory in the market that we have. And I know that was one of Baker's best selling sites through the summer. We had, we had great numbers. Great numbers. Great numbers.
2: It was a nice run. Yeah. Um, that was a fun project. We were pretty much alone in that marketplace, so it worked out very well. Yeah.
0: Not anymore, <sighs> but
1: <laughs> three three launches in four weeks in Mississauga.
2: But
1: um, currently, it was fun
0: while it lasted. <laughs> so
1: what are, you know, obviously, we uh, you know, like I said, we, we look at some deals together, and I see some of them coming back. Some developers coming back. Hey, let's reassess the revenue. Let's reassess the revenue. Well, you know, and obviously, that's like 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 Karen said, that's only one part of it. But what what else are you hearing? What are the, some of the reasons that you're hearing? For hey, let's just hold off. It's a good question. I think
2: I think, you know there's various developers with 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 various um, financing in place, yeah. and so different developers have different needs, wants. Some need to get construction going some have trades they need to keep busy and that is uh, a reason to get going some have land that has cost them a lot of money or has time limits on various dollars whether it be funds whether it be um, you know uh, deals they've made on with landowners and so some people have to get to market and that's okay yeah other developers might have bought their land a long time ago, might have a good purchase price, may have really strong staying power and wants to find that top end price. And I think that it really depends on who that developer is and what their goals are for every site. And we try to work with all of our clients on what makes sense. Um, In today's market, we're seeing developers go out and having successes. You brought up Park Road. We're just starting to firm up deals, but we did really well there. Nice. but it is a different type of market. We're actually the highest price per foot in market today. on uh, New launches, um, and uh, and it's working. We we you know we have a very unique location. We're you know Yorkville, Young, and Bluer, yeah. um, and there's not that much in market in that area. So it really comes down to um, you know do you have a market to yourself? When we had, when we launched above, we had the Mississauga market to ourselves. Today we might be having a different conversation about do we launch above today because there are again there's three launches right now in yeah. Mississauga. So really the question is like, you know, what's happening in the local marketplace? Is there an opportunity? And then we assess them yeah. and it has to come down to it comes down to unit sizes, mm-hmm. what pricing makes sense and all of those pieces. Yeah. So um, I would say we have a lot of developers who have projects they've um they're ready to go with, and they haven't gone to market with. And we're going to continue to watch what happens with the interest rates, what happens with you know consumer confidence levels, and they have a lot of other developers who are going to continue to to come out with product, and yeah. uh, and you know we're going to see a lot of successes, and we'll see uh, some other projects as well.
1: <laughs> <You know what? laughs> and it's, go ahead, go ahead.
0: No, just say it's it's also it's interesting in the context of you know expectations as well, and you know it's it's incredible how much we we take the last few years as kind of the barometer for project success and that hasn't we've obviously all of us have been in the market for a while and that hasn't always been the case i think we're at absorption levels could certainly be better um but i think a normalization of somewhere between you know the the one month sellout and you know the the 18 month sellout or to 70 percent is a is a there's a happy medium somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. And I think also resetting the expectations of what is a successful launch? You know, that's the that's the water cooler talk is, you know, how many units did they do and what is the perception of success at a particular launch? Is it, you know, should it be 80% in one month or two weeks? And so what is that new, and what are we resetting to even when the market comes back and mm-hmm. when things normalize and absorption goes up, let's hopefully sooner rather than later, but what will that metric be? And what will that percentage be? And what will the norm be in the marketplace? I, I don't perceive it going back to the gangbuster days. And part of me, you know, I, it, it's great to have those times because, it, you know, you can open your doors and move to the next project and next project. But as we see, you know, closings are, that's the end game. You know, you want to get your units closed, you want to get your money out of the project. And selling at heights and then having closing issues on the tail end, you want to make sure that like the whole project from the front to the, to the final close is successful. So, yeah,
1: that's interesting. It
2: that is very valid. And and you see the same problem with you mentioned construction trades earlier. You're saying that, you know, developers, your, your point is very valid. You send them sold at great prices, but then can't get someone to build it for six months, a year, two years, and you're paying for your land value anyway. So it's got to be a bit more of a, of a normalized market. Um, we have seen markets where we sell out projects that in a month, like some of them are like, in like three days. It's just, <laughs> it, it's great and it's fun, but it's a little bit much as well. Like, I think there's gotta be this normalization
1: period. Yeah. That's interesting. I'm a big fan, obviously of the park road project. Cause I was working with capital on that one before they even closed on the deal. So it's nice to see that it, it come forward. And, and I, what I've been telling is people, and maybe it's, maybe it's only something I'm seeing, but I really feel like there's. You know we talk a lot about when the market starts to soften there's a there's a you know flight to quality and the, typically the flight to quality had been Toronto right downtown Toronto but it seems like the flight to quality now is the flight to quality developers right so you're getting any feedback on you know not to throw any smaller developers under the bus but there are some there are some small developers out there that might end up having trouble getting uh, financing even though they're they're offering in the market it looks pretty good so my answer
2: will be that um, that developers matter, for sure. We, we've had a lot of successes out there, and, but we are seeing it is important. The developer is very important. Um, it, there are various checkboxes which are re- very important, and developer is incredibly important. We've had a lot of luck with Marlin. I mean, we've uh, our first site together was the DAWs was the Dawes. And um, there was no question. We both have followings and we worked and we brought them all in and we had a massive success there. Um, Not too far from where you are, but uh, uh, on the Danforth East, which is not a typical condo location, even though it's a great location, it's definitely a little bit less a little bit more off the beaten path, yeah. not as far as Pickering, but definitely an <laughs> off the beaten path yeah. um, location um, in Toronto. But uh, great location once you you know you understand what it is. So I do think that it is true. People are looking for developers. They want to trust the developer. They want to understand something is going to be built that they can hang their hat on and and live in. But we're also seeing um, a lot of government um, oversight in the, uh, in the Toronto marketplace, Ontario marketplace. And that does help. Hopefully it gives buyers a little bit of confidence that, um, you know, there is someone overseeing, it's not going to help a project gets canceled. It's not going to help certain things, but, um, it is it is it is helpful to know that it's not that you're just handing someone a, a hundred thousand dollars and hoping they build something. That there is requirements they have to go through. Interesting, interesting.
1: Well, I'm gonna ask this question because someone uh, I need to do uh, a section on this in an upcoming report. So, we getting paid for this? Are you getting paid for this? Yeah, oh, I, I,
0: I think so. <laughs> no,
2: no, no one told me I that. I am yeah, now that here. I
0: know we're part go. of a report.
2: You're
1: cookies. I think <laughs> I bought those. <laughs> Okay. So from my perspective, it's difficult obviously, to assess the market with a high number of incentives being offered. So it makes it, you know, it's always difficult to net out some of these uh, uh, expenses. So we have extended deposits seem to be the biggest needle mover, but there's also, uh, you know, higher commissions, rental guarantees, cash back and closing. Anything else that's kind of moving the needle right now? What do you think is the, the best incentive to uh, to get people to buy units these days?
0: Yeah. I mean, you, you touched on probably all of them and depending on who your competition is or what's going on in the marketplace, then you usually need to adjust to kind of suit that market and, and what your competitors are doing. Certainly deposits. I mean, that's a that's a huge one. We would just were gearing up for a project in Etobicoke in, in a couple of weeks and our competitor came out and they, they're able to offer a lower deposit structure just by virtue of the structure of their company. So obviously that's something that you know, we look at with envy, Um, (laughs) (laughs) but then we have to find other ways to, to incentivize our product and and make it, you know, make it palatable and and attractive in the marketplace, even if we can't compete on that particular, that particular component. But that's such a, that's such a huge one right now. I think incentives, um, certainly client incentives, you need to, you know, we work a lot with brokers, but at the end of the day, the broker's have clients and those clients need to want to buy so what can we do for the clients um, certainly not just our, our broker community but what can we do for the end user to really ensure that they they have an appetite to to buy into your project and giving some assurances you know you talked a little bit before about the carrying cost so how can you help to reassure people or not have to put out cash so be it you know credits for maintenance fees, um, development charges, those those heavy cash outputs maybe at the end or during the, the course of carrying the unit, if their fear is that rates might stay slightly elevated at the time that your, your building's closings, and then what can you do to kind of mitigate the carrying costs for them? So a lot of different things happening in the marketplace for sure. Um, and to your point, it's very difficult to really assess what are the end prices yeah. um, people can come out and then incentives built into that. So yeah. what like yeah, what is it's the hard actual to get
1: the sense of the, the For sure. Number. I'm
0: sure for you being in the research side. Yeah, I mean
1: that's you know, especially <laughs> and also with like the, the, the different sizes of units. Like, you know, we're seeing projects that have studios at sixteen hundred bucks a foot, but uh three bedroom plus dens at eleven hundred, right? There's that much of a delta on a price per square yeah. foot basis between the smallest and largest units.
0: Right? Well there's a lot of I mean there's a lot of inventory. I mean even though there's an overall housing supply shortage at this moment in time, there is a lot of inventory on the market and so there's a lot of choice for consumers as well so coming out in this market with you know unit design is paramount how you're presenting forward your units and your sales offices and all the the marketing aspects of your projects and how you bring that out to market i think is very important as well because the choice is there and how you present your project outward is is Mm. very important Yeah. yeah
1: it's also very difficult to assess You know, I almost tell people ignore anything that launched in February 2022 or earlier because that came to market in a much different pricing environment, a much different uh, interest rate environment. We really can only assess projects that have launched in this new interest rate environment because a lot of developers are still very reluctant to lower pricing on anything that has. Runway before completion, right? The only time I'm seeing any type of price increases is literally like one month before closing, right? (laughs) And and if you know, even if I look at some of the projects, apples to apples, you know, taking out the outliers. They're still, developers are still increasing pricing in 2023 on a lot of their product, right? So, um, but then they're offering some of these incentives, right? So they're offsetting some of these things, right? So it's just a straight offset. Uh, so someone might come in and go, oh man, they're still raising pricing. I better jump in, right? And that, But then they see, you know, maybe they're doing a, a rate buyback, but I'm not seeing that as much on the high rise. Are you seeing any like rate paydowns on, on the high rise side? definitely happening, okay. yes. Yes. <laughs> Um, it's really trying to figure out
2: what does the buyer need. And yes, if, if, it's, if it's a move-in soon type of product, then we're seeing more of that rate buy-down. A new construction doesn't make that much sense because you're looking at saying it's not going to be built for three, four, five years. And people are, well, at least I'm bullish, about the fact that we're going to see interest rates come down between now and then. And they could go up again between now and five years from now. But you know, we do think that we're going to come out of this high interest rate environment in the next uh, year, two years, whatever it is. Um, I think all major banks have essentially said by sometime late next year, hopefully we'll see start seeing some drops. We'll see what really happens. But we're selling some of these products, 2026, 2027, Um, And we're going to see a whole different world. But some of the, the existing stuff, we are seeing some, some rate buy-downs. Um, really, it's coming down to what is the end price? What does it look like? Um, and what is the deposit structure? How much do I have to put out? When do I have to put it out? And, um, and people choosing, you know, a good developer, or good floor plans, location I believe in, and a price I believe in. And, um, you know, they're looking for a lot of those, those key aspects, and they're still buying today. There are investors out there. They're just really looking for what's the right deal and not what's the right deal on an incentive base. What's the right deal? Does this yeah.
1: make sense? Yeah. So you're not offering eight, 9% commissions out no. there. <laughs> what does it what Does the deal make sense? Is really yeah. what it's coming down to.
0: I think nice. the pricing these days also, it, it does make a lot of sense to buy right now. I mean, it's a, it's a great environment, but the hesitancy is, You know, you look at what people, if you're a property owner at this juncture or you have a multitude of investments, probability is that you may be coming up for renewal or just come into a renewal environment where your carrying costs have escalated substantially. So convincing people to output cash in this environment is a, it's, it's a, it's a a lot to ask and it's, I can see how there's hesitancy. So to, you know, to create an environment, a, a bit of a safety net in the context of be it your pricing, your product, your closing date, or some of your incentives is, is Quite important.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Well, I'm going to have one more question before we get into the rapid fire. Obviously, Harley represents you guys at some sites do you ever have issues with deciding on where to set set pricing and and i guess it's for, for yes, you everybody. like <laughs> how, how do you how do you decide like do you ever just say absolutely like that's crazy you're nuts or you just say okay we'll see and then let the sales dic- you know show that you're right how did you guys get, get around you know disagreements in terms of right. revenue
2: it's interesting. Aaron and I sit in a room together. We both close our eyes and we just say a number, and it's always exactly <laughs> the same. You
1: just slide on feet, just Every time, right? what one thousand one hundred sixty-two? Oh my so goodness! It's why we work so well together. Actually,
2: um, so we're here to guide our clients. We also have to make sure they can make money. Yeah. Um, in uh, you know, there's a lot of. A lot of pieces to your point that you have to look at when you say this entire neighborhood right now is selling for twelve hundred dollars a foot what well, makes sense and you have to look at the resale comps you have to look at rentals you have to look at what's happening whether it's going up or in the direction we don't like talking about um, and then you have to look at what competitors are doing to sell units so we give a lot of guidance on pricing it is not our decision it's of course our clients decision whether it be Maryland spring you mentioned capital reserve Metrobia, um, you know any of our clients that we're working with um, it's their their project, it is their money, it is their decision, we do our best to guide them. When we think they can make more money, we tell them. We think they have to bring it down, we tell them. Um, What I don't think it's worth doing in a market like we're in today is marking up the price with the theory, let's do some stuff in the back end and let's discount in two or three months from now, because I know there's some of that going on. Um, We're like, let's go out, put our best foot forward, get some traction, and then figure out how to then, of course, um, obviously make more money as we move forward and move through the process. Um, and, uh, and it really, I mean, it's, it's really a discussion that has to happen. It has to make sense. The performers have to work. The ability has to get built. It's a waste of time, money, energy to do this thing. I love what I do. Like, I think I love it too much. Um, but I absolutely love what I do, but it's not that fun that I want to do it and then not build and not get (laughs) the building. So, so I do think that it is really important that everything works as well. Yeah. as well and sometimes you just figure out how to make it work and you just brought up one other point uh, a couple minutes ago and you said it's hard to price a building because you're seeing $1,600 a foot for a studio and 1100 for a three bedroom and that's often how we get it done and we make the performer work by saying you know what let's add 10000 to that studio and let's sell that three bedroom for 10000 less and then we talked about this about an hour ago you're still going to end up selling that studio and probably end up holding that three bedroom <laughs> um, and so later on maybe you can get that 10000 on that three bedroom
1: yeah
2: um, we did look at pricing historically. I think through our big our um, uh, Baker Insight Group, we looked at pricing historically, and the the and from day one sales to the to when we actually sell things, from day one pricing to when we actually sell, we are seeing um, our three bedrooms, our two bedrooms, our larger units are actually gaining the most in price versus a small product. A small product because it moves up front and. Um, and you can usually put a bigger price on it, and, and you usually have to discount some of the larger stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So, so and have you ever just uh, straight quit on a client because you're tired of working for them? <laughs> It's hard for me to answer that on this, on this, but it might have happened once or twice. <laughs> that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, no, that's that that's an interesting part. I mean, I th- I think that you know, I mean, I do obviously do hundreds and hundreds of reports on a on a on an annual basis for clients, and uh, and some of them need those reports for financing, right? And they and and they come back, all well, you, you forgot about the hospital, like uh, six subway stops away, or you didn't realize there was a park there. And I'm like, well, it's a cemetery uh, it's not a park. And I'm like, Oh, well the, 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 you know, this building over there, I'm like, yeah, but your buildings beside a 1960s rental. So there's no self views. Right. You know, and so there's always, I always have to caveat them. So I can imagine that, you know, developers sometimes don't like to hear that their project is not as nice as they they think it is, or they can get, uh, this, this additional price because they do something different than the next guy. Right. So I'm just always curious how those, some of those conversations go in the back room. Yeah. And I think
0: for us, I mean, it's not just a conversation with baker but you know we there's a lot of internal dialogue that happens i mean we we set our pricing typically internally in terms of what we want from the onset of a project i mean we're looking at it from the point of acquisition and then how does that project carry forward we report on our projects even though they may not be on market in terms of what our assumptions are for that particular revenue number over the course of time so when you're coming out to market we've been looking at that project it could be for Two years we've been reporting on it to our (laughs) to our partners and assessing what the valuation is. So, you know, my director of sales and I, you know, we'll sit in a room and go back and forth on pricing just as much as we would with 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 Baker and everyone. So the, the push pull is there on so many different levels when it
1: comes to figuring out what works for the project. All right. So, so we've, we, we've almost come to the end here of the podcast. We've been chatting a long time, but we have this section at the end called the rapid fire. So I will direct some quick questions for you. I'm looking for only like five to 10 word responses here. So Harley, I'm going to start with you. Some of them might be real estate related. Some might and might not be. So just be prepared. Would expanding rent control to new units depress pre-construction condo purchases? Yes. Do you or will you ever own a Harley motorcycle? No. And maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Okay. Okay. Um, I understand that there's a company out of Montreal doing big data and AI to determine new condo prices. How many more years do you think we have before we're replaced by a computer
2: I think it'd be very difficult to replace what we do by a computer Um, but we have our own AI
1: technology that we're actually implementing as well um, to help with pricing breaking news oh my goodness I need to get I need to get Mm -hmm. some access to that that sounds like fun okay Um, are you seeing any deposit checks bouncing it happens for sure, but it happens. But I will say that like we
2: end up, they don't they don't bounce and not come back. But I think people make decisions to write a thirty six thousand dollar check or a fifty thousand dollar check, <laughs> and six months later forget that they wrote that check.
1: <laughs> Is Barbara Lawler always as positive and as professional as she appears in public behind the scenes, or does she ever drop some f bombs on you?
2: No, every time we have conversations about about a. Bill for that we just paid for technology that is a lot of money, and she will be just as optimistic and positive about that bill as she
1: is on the stage when you see her. <laughs> she's she no amazing. joke, she's amazing. So, okay, if the resale market remains flat in 2023 and 2024, do you think the majority or do you think some of the investors will cut their losses whole, uh, and sell, or do you think they'll wait out the downturn? I think they'll wait out the
2: downturn, majority will wait out the downturn, unless certain people are under. Some sort of pressure. I think people are going to point it out. I think so too.
1: Do you ever get tired of taking pictures with outside brokers? Once or twice, I have. <laughs> I, I don't.
2: I don't know if you saw, but I sent a cardboard cutout of myself for them to start taking photos. <laughs>
1: That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> All right, uh, Aaron, you're up. Um, are we going back to million-dollar uh, on-site sales offices, or are small? St- Storefronts and virtual presentations enough to get your construction financing sales threshold.
0: We are going back to million dollar sales offices. We've tried different ends of the spectrum in that regard. And I think we we feel that this market and probably the market going forward, given that I don't think we're going back to there's a there's a place for virtual sales, but yeah, definitely the million-dollar
1: sales no, office. Okay. You didn't ask me, but <laughs> that also
0: wasn't five or seven. <laughs>
1: I forgot that. Um, In the next five years, will we see condos launched with movable walls? I think there was one on Wellington, I want to say.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There may have been already a few. If it's not something you guys are actively talking about. We are not talking about that, no.
1: Okay. During softer market conditions, developers often give fake numbers to the sales tracking companies like Altus and Zonda. Have you ever done that?
0: Never. Never.
1: I didn't think so. Are developers doing any bulk deals these days? You know, selling large chunks of units at a discounted rate. Potentially. Well, I'll point I, that yeah, too. you have
0: to ask Harley. In Anyone? our portfolio, no, but not to say Anyone? it doesn't happen. Anyone?
2: I'm going to go with potentially, but uh, uh, we're going to,
1: you know, potentially. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a that's a great way to end it off, um, Harley. If someone wants to know a little bit more about Baker Real Estate, where do they where do they go?
2: www.baker-re.com
1: nice. or uh, uh, Google Baker. Nice. And you have upcoming. You've got the Hill launch. What else you got upcoming in the, uh, in, the in the next month or so? Uh, in the next couple of weeks, we
2: have um, the Hill coming, which is going to be the next one. We just launched M-City this week. Uh, M6. We have the Hill coming. Um, we also have a first for Baker Real Estate. We have a commercial office condo project coming on Gordon Baker Road, which is going to be an interesting one. Um, and then we have Bellwood's house coming. Nice. And then we have um, Cliffside Condos coming up. Oh,
1: nice. So friends, friends of the show, Matt Young, Like great to see his first project coming on. Yes. And so Marlin Spring, where, where do people go if they want to buy some of this uh, inventory at Stockyards or some of your your new launches here?
0: Yeah, I mean, we do have, um, we'll have a second phase of Above coming and we still have some inventory in the first, which is great. Also, obviously the Dawes and we're going to be launching our, our Joya project in a couple of weeks on the Queensway. And then looking forward to next year, we've got some great projects along the Lakeshore. With some great water views and a few other really marquee sites coming to market. So, it should be an interesting year ahead.
1: Nice. Well, thanks again for both of you for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. That's a wrap.